At Farm Sanctuary, a cow named Liz gently bathes her son, Cashew. Her love is a force, deeply felt and moving, just like ours. Visit farmsanctuary.org to see how justice and compassion can replace exploitation. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the October issue, Elizabeth Barber writes about what she calls, quote, the neglected youngest sibling of even the most committed leftist, end quote. Animal rights. How can we dedicate resources, emotional, temporal, or financial, to such a cause when there is so much human suffering? Isn't it just kind of insulting and indulgent? Yet if you pull the thread, the beneficiaries of what amounts to systemic injustice on a massive scale are the same. Barber's reporting reveals that the owners of factory farms dictate the laws that govern their cruel, filthy practices, along with the terms in which they're discussed. She follows Matt Johnson, a white former National Guardsman, you know, the sort of guy you'd see a presidential hopeful chatting with at the Iowa State Fair in an election year, who faced prosecution after he broke into an Iowa Select Farms facility, rescued a piglet, and installed cameras to record the agonizing extermination of hogs via ventilation shutdown. I spoke with Barber and Johnson about the media's silence around factory farming, the environmental impact, the boundary between activism and journalism, and much more. This is a rarity because you're going to be hearing from three Iowans who are also vegans. And that's probably a perspective, you know, people who are not parachute dropped into the state to report on, let's say, the straw poll or the Iowa caucuses or looking for a for a former Obama voter who's become a Trump voter and maybe they worked in manufacturing and, you know, like the sort of the avoiding all of the sort of stereotypical stories about places that are not located on the West Coast or the East Coast of the United States. And we're also going to be talking about something that really is very rarely talked about, which is what exactly happens in factory farming, where all of the meat that you consume, all of the milk that you consume, whether you like it or not, what goes into making that? And the uncomfortable truth of the matter. And Elizabeth, your piece, you know, follows Matt, who's an animal rights activist, and you get into how it's really hard to even know what goes on, because I'll just quote this because I think it's really insightful. Towards the end of the piece, you write, quote, the communication strategy in industrial farming has been to avoid communicating altogether. If, by way of defending itself, industry representatives were to talk about what happens inside its facilities, a significant number of people would stop eating their pork. Or, more likely, while many people would still eat big pork's products, the very act of having to defend itself would indict an industry that prefers to maintain that it has nothing to defend. End quote. So, Matt, how does your own philosophy in actual action of activism work with that uh that silence and and can you talk about some of the actions that you have done to 
break through this silence and expose what is going on every day at this moment right now. Yeah, I think that is uh, very well put. I think it's there's a bizarre situation where the facts are so thoroughly on our side and are just so, you know, largely un, unknown to, to the public or, you know, people maybe have like some vague sense of like, okay, there's this thing called factory farming that exists somewhere and it's bad and I shouldn't support it. And, uh, well, you know, the thing I'm buying off the grocery store shelf doesn't say factory farm cruelly raised pork. So like, I'm going to just, I'm just going to call it good, you know, which is very understandable, natural reaction. Um, but yeah, kind of where this, where this leads um, is uh, from a communications perspective, it's like you have this big opportunity with all these like very relevant facts and, and horrific things that are happening that, that the public needs to know about. But the you know, industry efforts and the legislative and, and political efforts to, to silence what's going on and in, in, in the media and you know, just the business of it, if, if people have this innate kind of defensiveness around it, and unfortunately, the kind of feel kind of like a personal attack, any, any just reference to farmed animal suffering, people like think like, well, you know, if you're sitting down to eat three times a day, it kind of, you know, as much as I would say that that's not really the message and it's a systemic problem that people are born into and we should approach it as such, uh, people do feel that defensiveness. And so there's just kind of this ecosystem that, you know, by, by design or unfortunate accident has fallen into place that it people just are not finding out about it, which then, you know, to someone who's in my position, who kind of my whole day to day um, is basically trying to get media attention around these issues and the work that, uh, that I'm doing with Direct Action Everywhere, um, you kind of <laughs> come into a little bit of, of desperation of a sort. And so um, you link up with whistleblowers, some things that we've done, you know, notably as, as Elizabeth's story uh, dives into, working with this truck driver with Iowa Select Farm. So this is a guy who, uh, Lucas Walker is his name, truck drives pigs for this massive factory farming corporation as his uh, normal day-to-day uh, -day work. And what he saw was, was uh, horrific happening to animals. And he um, couldn't get any uh, resolution, anything done about that with uh, management of the company. He couldn't get anything done um, with, law enforcement uh you know nobody's interested in, in in taking it on and so he contacts the last person you would imagine a factory farm truck driver contacting which is the animal rights folks and um we were able to document this uh just unconscionable cruelty i mean people um uh, you know <laughs> don't want to give anybody nightmares but i think it's important for people to know we're talking about uh, ventilation shutdown where thousands of pigs are loaded into uh industrial sheds um, and the doors are closed off, the ventilation uh, ducts are closed off, so no air is coming in or out, and it's sealed tight. Air is, uh, steam is pumped in, heat is pumped in, um, boiling water is just poured in because they're not properly calibrating it for it to be steam. Um, just unconscionable cruelty. Uh, I mean, in the audio alone, you can hear for, for two hours straight, it's just deafening screams of these, these animals. Um, obviously horrific that this, this would happen. Uh, but, uh, the good news are, you know, the, I guess, silver lining with it is, is that we were able to expose it for the world to see. Um, I was subsequently prosecuted, which, uh, you know, from a communications perspective, at least, um, has that benefits. Um, 
So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a one of a kind kind of a conundrum. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think what you said is really well put and it, it gets at, you know, as you said, this is a systemic issue and one that, you know, it, people feel attacked if you bring it up. And Elizabeth, you know, you begin the piece with, you know, kind of a note of skepticism, you know, should we care about animal activism? And as a journalist approaching this story, you, you know, how did you, how did you approach this subject that nobody really wants to hear about? And, and, you know, when you were covering it, how did you, again, sort of maintain, um, I don't know, do you have, I, I mean, I have so many questions, but I think, you know, how, how do you approach something that no one ever wants to talk about ever? <laughs> um, yeah, so in the early stages of writing this, I came across this, um, this like scientific paper um, by like a British sociologist um, who was comparing um, veganism to feminism in that like feminists were often called killjoys <laughs> for a long time. Um, and I kept thinking about my like teenage self who did not want to be called a killjoy and would do anything like just to keep like laughing along at the jokes told about women. Um, and just like wanted to be like a cool girl and a hot girl and like, uh, wanted people to like me and to fit in and, and it's, it's really similar, I think, with veganism now. Like, we've made a lot of progress with feminism, um, that it's, it's now quite cool and, and hot and awesome to be a feminist. But um, I still, you know, I, I, I still struggle a lot with um, being uh, someone who is in support of the animals, someone who is a vegan, um, with people who aren't. Um, like, I, I go really far out of my way to make people feel comfortable with their choices and to let them know that it's okay that they're eating meat. I don't mind. It's totally cool. Um, they can make fun of me for being a vegan. It's totally fine. Um, and anyway, I think that piece opens with skepticism because that's where I was at at the time that I was meeting Matt. Um, just feeling like I didn't want to be like a vegan weirdo. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's been a year reporting this piece, and I feel like gradually I've come around more to sort of owning an identity as as someone who is for the animals. That was a very long-winded answer, and really, <laughs> but I don't know if I covered everything you're looking for there. No, I mean, I think over the course of this conversation, we'll cover that, because I, I, I mean, I, I totally relate to what you say, because... I mean, I remember reading some headline from CNN that was like vegan mountaineer who wanted to prove vegans could do anything dies on Mount Everest. And it was like a punchline. And I was like, I'm sorry. And everyone was laughing. And it's like, you know, making fun of it online. It's like, well, someone died. Like that's a that's a real life. And the killjoy aspect is a really crucial part of this. And as you say, Matt, kind of exposing this injustice that no one wants to see is really, it's a really hard road to, to walk. So I guess, how do you, as an activist who, who specializes in kind of communicating with journalists, do you, do you ever feel skeptical 
of journalists or do you feel that like any any press is good press because of how radioactive this is oh man do i do i ever not feel skeptical of journalists <laughs> it's uh <laughs> you always i mean here fact you always should don't ever talk to me yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> uh well it's uh yeah i think you gotta understand the nature of the beast and uh you know with with the kind of defensiveness as as we discussed that that people feel around it then that's just going to naturally feed into the sensationalist, aha, the vegan died, everybody celebrate that. Or if there's a vegan parent out there somewhere that like malnourished their child because they had some, you know, whatever holistic approach to health or whatever, then that makes the headlines. And of course, what doesn't make the headlines is, you know, the just ongoing uh, epidemic of, of heart disease and diabetes and obesity that are, you know, very direct consequences of the, the animal agriculture industry that that doesn't doesn't grab any headlines for, you know, because of this very dynamic that cuts in the other direction. So, you know, I think things I mean, like, I mean, the, this, uh, I mean, the, the expose that, that we talked about here, where it is this collaboration that, you know, fell into place, but it, it works well, communications wise, that it's like, hey, this is a truck driver, who's horrified by this, this isn't, you know, you don't have to take it from the mouth of the radical animal rights activists, but this is like ordinary people are affected by this and horrified by this. And so that's that's something that's really powerful. Um, I mean, in, in terms of communications wise, there's the, um, I was able to get on uh, Maria Bartiromo's show on Fox Business uh, in, uh, that was December, 2020, posing as the, uh, the, the CEO of, um, uh, uh, that was posing as CEO of uh, Smithfield Foods and uh, managed to, get through the full six minutes without getting cut off and with uh, sliding in some, uh, some anti-industry uh, talking points under the radar a little bit. So we definitely have to be uh, pretty persistent and creative to make it happen and uh, try to find ways to, to appeal to people because people, people care about animals. People, you know, somebody's walking down the street and a dog is getting kicked suddenly everyone's an animal rights activist. So like there's, there's that glimmer of hope there that we, you know, we can tap into that and um, just got to kind of keep uh, being creative in, in how we make that happen. I was going to ask Matt a question, <laughs> um, which is like that protest that I didn't go to at Foster Farms. If like, if you're ever afraid that like coverage of those protests of of activists chaining themselves, of going without water, of having to wear diapers, of uh, being hauled away <laughs> um, in their chains, and then the ultimate futility of it, of the trucks going in anyway after, you know, four hours. And then that's covered in just the, here are the facts, these, these are the facts of what happened by the local papers. If that ever ultimately ends up feeling like bad press to you, if you feel like okay, here's another story out there in which people are going to receive it and say, like, all those vegan weirdos, like, look what they're doing with their time today and get a job, guys. I, yeah, I think, um, I don't, uh, with something like that, I mean, it, I think, uh, <laughs> sounds horrible, but, like, what comes to mind is, like, it can't get, there's not so much damage that can be done from kind of the place it's at right now. Um <laughs> Which uh, I, I mean, I don't mean that in like, the worst sense of it, but um, I think that 
you know, people have the realization that what's happening, you know, it's like those people probably have a point on some level of like what's happening there. And, um, you know, so it's on some level rationally, yeah, we're in agreement with them, but kind of back to your point about, about feminism, it's like, I don't want to be part of your club type of thing. And so that's just kind of like where we're at. And so that's the sort of conundrum here that, uh, you know, how do we make this inspiring enough or cool enough? I mean, with the, the kind of the comedy, the kind of prankish stuff is like kind of going in that direction. You know, it's not, um, you know, it's, it's really not about winning a, a logical, rational debate. We've had that territory for decades and it hasn't, you know, in and of itself doesn't, doesn't do much for us. So it's kind of, appealing on a more human emotional level that is the big giant uh you know uphill battle to sort of turn to sort of the larger picture just like any systemic injustice this is um really ingrained you know in a in a way that is sometimes hard to parse it it is it has made itself invisible in a lot of ways um and i think you know again talking about iowa select farms uh, they operate 800 pig farms in the state of Iowa. And these, to, to give you, you know, 5,000 pigs, that's probably like average size. This is, they, they take up tremendous amount of, of property, of land, of surface area. And the, in this state, uh, and, and when people, you know, sometimes people from Iowa will sort of self-depreciatingly say, oh yeah, there are more pigs than people in Iowa. And it's, and it's not just because it's a small state with a low population it's just that this business is so prevalent and so huge and specifically um really married to uh politics and you know the the owner of iowa select farms uh donated something like three hundred thousand dollars to republican governor kim reynolds campaign um these these things go hand in hand in a way that uh again somebody from the state of California, California, which has banned the importation of, of pork from Iowa because it is so cruel, would not know. So can we talk about, can we get back to this question of what constitutes animal and what constitutes livestock? And, and then maybe get into the fact of <laughs> the reality of what happens when you trespass on agricultural facilities as opposed to any other form of trespassing. Yeah, I think that uh, that's an interesting thread to, to explore there because you have the, 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 the you know, your average Iowan, people who are my family and friends are people who by and large are, are you know, see, see farming as, you know, just kind of as this general concept that is very wholesome and very good and doesn't need too much, uh, you know, examination. And, and in fact, that examination is, is kind of, you know, taken with, with personal offense to the individual farmers, even despite the fact that uh, these individuals don't really have much say in, in things on the ground, uh, that there's, uh, you know, higher level of corporate power that's instructing them exactly kind of how to go about things. So they, they're, you know, checked out on, on, the, on the treatment of those animals, but very much, I mean, a nation of animal lovers that, uh, that you know, their, their dogs and their cats, uh, you know, are, are family members and are, are in that very distinct category of, of not being livestock. I also think what you touched on there about the, the 
kind of like political implications is very relevant too. And, you know, Iowa being the, the, with the Iowa caucuses being the first in the nation, I guess, still for, for on the Republican side, at least, um, the dynamic I think is very similar with, uh, Trump supporters as it is to, uh, people who are, are kind of loud and proud as, as farmers, um, in that, uh, people who are supporting Trump have, you know, from, from day one been sold this bill of goods, that this is this populist who's going to drain the swamp and people really built this identity around, uh, around being Trump supporters and what, uh, at least they're told that that means. And of course, all the while, uh, you know, Donald Trump is uh, policy wise is, is, you know, basically a Republican as usual, and he will continue to, to grift and, and fundraise, uh, you know, oh, we're going to, you know, challenge the election in the courts and, you know, the fine print on these fundraisers that are putting millions of dollars in his pocket is like, yeah, this money's going to wherever he decides it's going to and not to these, you know, anything going on in the courts. And similarly, um, you know, farming as an institution is just so revered and seen as this, this wholesome identity and this wholesome, you know, practice, which I mean, rightfully so, everybody has to eat. Um, but it's, it's been, you know, but that, that good name has been manipulated by these corporate actors to, to, you know, who similarly in terms of the, the policy, the politics, uh, the, the, the real world ramifications of their actions is not in the interest of the every man. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, you know, just like it's, it's really tough to deal with. How do we deal with the problem of these uh, Trump supporters who are kind of, you know, in many cases, very resistant to the facts we see, you know, in, in a smaller segment a similar dynamic, uh, kind of in the farming community. Yeah, I guess I'm probably going to repeat a lot of what Matt said, but I think so many like right voting people in Iowa don't like KFOs. It's not, it, it doesn't matter who you vote for. If a KFO gets put next to your small family farm, like it still smells. It doesn't matter if you voted for Trump or not. It still stinks. Um, I remember like Matt told me that he had like a really good relationship with the woman who um, was renting the, the activist rooms at the inn. She was just like really, really kind to Matt and really interested in what he was doing. And I called her at one point and she was like, she lives in Clarion, Iowa. And she, um, you know, like, I don't, I don't know what she votes, but <laughs> I assume it's not super left. But she was just telling me that she had no idea what was going on um, in these CAFOs that surrounded her her home and that she had gotten really interested in, in what Matt was saying to her so much so that she had started watching the live streams of their protests and that she just found it shocking and appalling and horrifying. And she told me that the housekeeper who was watching with her started crying when she heard the sounds of the pigs screaming um because the activists had played that sound um in the streets in the in the town they were staying in um yeah i don't know i get, this is all just getting back to the sense that like that iowa select farms and, and these kfo owners they know they know that even that even republican voters hate this um, or would hate it if they were aware of the, the scale of the sort of depravity going on in their state. Yeah, I can't remember every part of your question, but I think um, 
it's worth. I'm sorry. I, I asked. I asked very no, okay. questions because again, because it's, it's so it's hard. Again, I can't pretend to be neutral on this issue. Of course, yeah. Because I have the fact. I have the facts. I, can't and... I don't think that journalists are neutral. I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, and there are certain situations where they shouldn't be i mean i don't know i think probably anderson cooper should announce that he's descended from a literal robber baron at the start of every broadcast like <laughs> there are things that what what does and does not count as a you know you got to disclose this about yourself yeah. uh it's a slippery slope let's say yeah well it's like yeah well what counts what counts is you know something that needs to be disclosed versus something that doesn't is is very you know subjective to the you know, I guess if you were in 1850, you might want to, hey, I'm, I'm not really down with this slavery stuff. So just just put it out there, you know. <laughs> so it's all like, I mean, I thought, you know, it's like this is like common sense stuff. Like, you know, in a sense, like it's like, what, what do you need to disclose? Yeah, let's not torture animals. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I ended up getting kicked out of that pork conference because I could not prove to them that I was neutral or on their side, if that makes sense. Like... I identified as a journalist um, and they believed me to be an activist and I could not prove the distinction between the two. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, I, and I, you know, it's like you showing them that you've been published in the New Yorker and, and, you know, all these different places like that. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you tried that, but I, I, there's no reason to think that that would have, that would have swayed them or that probably made, that's, that's fake news stuff. That might've even made them even more worried, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Uh, it's wild. Yeah, that's a, a different reality. Yeah, I wanted, I actually wanted to ask about that final, you know, scene in the story, because, you know, you, um, you're kicked out for mysterious reasons uh, that are not actually mysterious at all. <laughs> but, you know, unlike Matt, you weren't going to trespass for the sake of your work. So why not? Yeah, I explicitly chose not to break any rules. <laughs> Um, like I registered under my real name and under my real address and gave yeah, away all our tricks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that, I mean, that is the boundary for me between being a journalist and being an activist that I am not willing to break the law um, in order to get access to information. Um or it's a really flimsy, porous boundary, though, isn't it? Because I am willing to take information that someone broke the law to get for me. Um, and it's a really flimsy, porous boundary between being an activist and being a journalist. Um, I'm sure someone could read this piece and argue that, that there is no distinction, that I'm obviously a vegan and obviously trying to do a service to animal activism. The ventilation shutdown, which, again, is you lock a bunch of animals inside of and you know where they can barely move anyway and uh boil them or steam them to death and it takes hours not all of them die even after being tortured for that long uh they have to have people come in and shoot them in the head that happened because of covid um and specifically the, the impact of COVID on the slaughterhouse and, quote, meat processing uh, industry was really profound. And, you know, there were there were some reports that, you know, uh, people, let's say, who worked at Tyson Foods had to report to work, even though they had 
symptoms of COVID and there were these gigantic outbreaks of the disease when there was, there was no, there was just no vaccine. This was, this was a death sentence for a lot of people because who works at these, 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 these facilities, these are, these are largely um, very poor. Uh, a lot of them are migrants. A lot of them don't have, you know, sort of, they need they need the money and they they don't have very good options for healthcare. So could we talk a bit about you know what COVID you know sort of what what change if what if anything changed during COVID and how you know um, the pandemic has sort of impacted not, not you know the the farming industry and perhaps also the consumption of meat. Yeah, I think that's really important in context. So that's that's uh, you know people would be wondering why they're doing this to to, to these pigs, and it's um, so they have these uh, you know COVID outbreaks at slaughterhouses, and then they uh, at some point eventually would shut these slaughterhouses down, uh, which you know curiously you know or, you know not curiously so much, but uh, behind the scenes we we now have like emails from Iowa Select Farms to the governor to the president, uh, the president's office. You know, suddenly Iowa Select Farms are the the biggest supporter of of opening up more immigration. Get those agricultural visas. We need more cheap labor because everybody's getting sick and dying. Like, wow, that's isn't that convenient? But uh, it was the slaughterhouse uh, the slaughterhouse is shutting down. That that you know, then they have nowhere to send the pigs. They got to figure out what to do with the pigs, and they, um, as corporations tend to do, they find the uh, cheapest, you know, cheapest uh, solution to their problem regardless of whatever outcomes might be associated with that. And so, you know, their solution was to kill off um, thousands of pigs. And this ventilation shutdown was a method. Actually, it was hundreds of thousands of pigs uh, nationwide that were killed um, via ventilation shutdown. And um, uh, the, you know, one thing that I want to make sure people understand too, because uh, what you'll hear from the industry who want to like put out a press release and don't want to engage in a further conversation is like, well, we had no choice. We had to do this, uh, which if you, if you, if you prioritize animal well-being, you, you did have plenty of choices. Uh, there are other ways to kill animals. If you decide you have to kill that, if you wanted to build out emergency build out barns or something like that, there are solutions They would have been expensive, but there are, there were other alternatives. But let's just say, even if we grant, okay, this is what we had to do. The next question should be, okay, well, let's examine this, this whole system. Like what is the system that has a supply chain, which is so delicate that, 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 you know, a disruption of this sort is going to result in just such barbarity uh, in the way that these animals are treated. And, and, and this isn't just some anomaly. I mean, COVID it specifically was an anomaly, but these sort of events are not anomalous at all to animal agriculture. And animal agriculture is uh, just a, a breeding ground for pandemic disease. And we've seen it just this year with the outbreak of um, avian influenza, bird flu, nationwide and throughout the world, and they're killing birds via this very same ventilation shutdown method. So so in, in 2020, this was happening to hundreds of thousands of pigs. This year, it's happening to tens of millions of birds nationwide. Um, and so, you know, we need to, uh, you know, and, and you'll never in a million years, are you going to get a factory farming executive in any sort of open interview where you can ask them this question. Uh, but 
fundamentally, I mean, the, the, the logical, decent, compassionate place this conversation goes is to say, okay, we need to question this overall system that's putting us in this place where just over and over and over again, it's just animals paying the price in just the most unconscionable ways. And we're in a world, have some damn Beyond, Beyond Meat, Impossible Burgers, Cashew Milk Ice Cream. This stuff is delicious. Like, come on. It's like, if we could snap our fingers for five minutes and live in the, the world, like we would never want to go back, but it's because there's so much inertia. This stuff is already just so entrenched in, in habitual uh, that it's just hard to like make the obvious right move. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with Matt. This was just the pandemic situation was just not an anomaly. Like I think like the same way that those of us with children realized during the pandemic that we are incredibly reliant upon people that we don't pay enough to take care of our children <laughs> and um, that those people ought to be paid more um, because we are extremely dependent upon them. I think we realized during the pandemic that the meat industry operates with total impunity, that they can do things like ventilation shutdown because they operate and exist in an environment in which they can do anything. Um, I think you had said before about the distinction between animals and livestock, and it's like an important one that um, like all things, like I think as I say in the piece, cows, pigs, emus, <laughs> they're not animals in Iowa. And I think in, in every state they're livestock and that means that they're commodities and that they are things and that they can be sold and disposed of as things in accordance with industry standards that yes, the industry sets itself. So ventilation shutdown is permitted by the standards that the industry has written for itself um, and that it is allowed to write for itself without a whole lot of public scrutiny. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so again, one of probably... There are many sort of jarring, difficult points in this piece, but one that has repeatedly gotten me uh, is when, you know, Matt, your your trial for, for trespassing, for criminal trespassing, uh, was canceled. The, the prosecution did not want to prosecute. And your lawyer attempted to sort of force the issue, and the judge was like, well, they don't want to prosecute. You can't, I can't force them to prosecute. So... Um, you know, you and a bunch of activists had come to uh, Clarion, Iowa for this trial, um, again, in the hopes of exposing through the coverage of this trial, what exactly had been going on. And, um, you know, as you it was a below freezing day, as it often is in Iowa in the winter, it was so cold that the schools were shut down. And um, you and, you know, your fellow activists found a bunch of dead pigs uh, next to the road and one of them was alive and you took it to a vet tried to save its life that did not work um, it, the animal died Lucas he, someone gave him a name Lucas um, and when you hear about that sort of thing that animals animals are, can be treated like trash um, and you, you contrast that with the incredible abundance of our time and the expectation of abundance at a supermarket, let's say, that you walk into any supermarket in this country and you'll see a giant, you know, around around the around the corners of the store, you know, a giant wall full of red, shiny meat 
you know, ready in it covered in its plastic, ready to go. And how much of that is also thrown away that animals, you know, that meat goes to waste in other contexts too. So, I mean, I guess this is, this is sort of more of a conceptual question, but, you know, do you feel like that time is of this intense sustained abundance is coming to an end or is it something that we have to force to end? Um, yeah, well, hopefully it doesn't uh, come by way of, uh, you know, progress. You know, one, one way in which it could manifest is if there were uh, food shortages and we had to have a real conversation about, um, you know, efficient food production and uh, the fact of, you know, feeding uh, an animal 10 pounds, uh, you know, roughly a 10 to 1 calorie disparity of, you know, 10 calories of grain turns into one pound of, of animal flesh. Um, that's one way that, you know, we could kind of back into uh, progress where people really see a need to change this or, or something like a, a pandemic outbreak, you know, directly caused by factory farming, which is, you know, not, not even a possibility, but an inevitability that we've seen historically time and time again. Um, hopefully it doesn't come to that. Uh, hopefully that, um, you know, a combination of sort of like these exposés that, that, that we're involved with and the um, alternatives, like I mentioned, can, can sort of uh, can, can make a more peaceful transition, I suppose. But yeah, we'll, we'll see. It's, it's, uh, it is a tough uphill fight, to say the least. I compared a lot to like fast fashion, like that there's an incredible abundance right now of options to change your wardrobe with the season or the month or the week. And it is just so, so tempting and easy to just do it, to just buy the Forever 21 outfit or the, I don't know, H&M outfit. Um, it's just so much easier to do it than to not do it, to order things on Amazon and to not think about it. It's so much easier to just go to the grocery store and buy the cheapest thing and not think about it. And like, I, I don't know if we're moving away from a period of abundance unless people are, you know, sort of held back by their own guilt <laughs> or unless culture moves in a way that we are more aware of our own guilt in this arena that we become, I think, in fast fashion, I think there's been a lot more progress that I think people are more embarrassed um, to buy Amazon basics outfits off of Amazon. And I hope that we move toward feeling like it's a a cooler thing to do, um, to not feel guilty about the way you eat, <laughs> to choose to buy Beyond Meat products because they are so good. And it is it is it is so easy ultimately. I'm I'm contradicting myself that it's that it's so it's so easy to not care, but it it is also actually so easy to care. I don't know. I don't have data or nothing uh, empirical to back this up, but but anecdotally, I definitely kind of have a sense that at least kind of in like the lefty ecosystem out there, that that people are not as inclined to uh, to share a picture of your barbecue or you know things like that. I think like, I, you know, it's, it's like people, you know, implicitly kind of realize the rightness in, of, of this position. And it feels like 10, 20 years ago, kind of everybody was like excited about barbecue, loud and proud about, you know, eating their animal flesh in a way that, um, 
I would say, I think a little bit on the, on the right too, but, but largely on the left, it kind of seems like it's gone that direction. And, uh, you know, similar to, uh, you know, me, I'm recently relocated back to Iowa after six years in Berkeley as kind of the, um, but it is similar to like the uh, NIMBY, YIMBY conversation, not in my backyard, yes, in my backyard developer, uh, you know, conversation around housing and development. And like, yeah, you can have your fancy, you know, uh, mansion on the coast and have nobody living next to you. But like everybody kind of like looks at that and it's like, oh, okay, you're like pulling some political favors and there's all these people on the street. And like, that's kind of not, not as cool to us as it might be to you <laughs> type of thing. Well, there's been so much more conversation about climate change right now and so much more like, I think there's a group of people that used to be in DXC. Um, they now run something called Pax Fauna, I think. Um, and I was talking to them for this piece, and they were talking about how in their research, they've been looking at how to get people to care about animals. And in their research, they found that meeting people by talking to them about consumption and as consumers, that meeting people as consumers is incredibly ineffective. That like, if you tell someone that what they're consuming is wrong, that what they're eating is wrong, if you meet them in the grocery store and say, don't buy that pork, that they are likely to be really defensive and talk back to you saying, but I have choices, but like, it's my right to choose, but it's my right as a consumer to make decisions. And I want to care about something else. And this is not what I want to care about, but that, that if you can meet someone like on a plane where they are already invested and climate change is probably the biggest one right now, um, that you are far more likely to make inroads with someone um, that they might not care about animals and that's okay. <laughs> um, but that they might care about not eating meat because they see that, you know, Iowa has been totally mortgaged to incredibly environmentally destructive practices that are ruining the air and ruining the water and overall just ruining the state. I mean, because the reason why the, you know, agriculture exists in the in the capacity that it does in the Midwest is because of the soil. Like prairie soil is the richest possible. It's it's incredibly fertile. And every year, I think there's probably about an inch that just is lost. And that, you know, there is no accounting for that loss, that that loss is just sort of taken for business as usual, <laughs> when in fact it, it does not need to exist it does not need to happen just like you don't you don't have to uh suffocate a, a airplane hangar size of uh, <laughs> of of pigs to 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 deal with the problem of covid right um talking about climate it sort of gets into this grand accounting of the universe and this is, this is sort of a thread that runs throughout the piece you know um how to be a good person or how to be a good activist, how to be an effective activist, as well as the question of a, of, of a purpose in life. So I guess for somebody who is listening, you know, you write about how Matt sort of wasn't, uh, wasn't entirely sure what he wanted to do with his life before finding the cause of animal liberation. What would you say to someone who maybe wants to make those changes, but is either feels like it would be too hard to sort of live a more ethical life 
or find something that they could sort of commit to in this way? I guess I am a person who is racked by guilt all the time about the ways in which my being a person is just constantly compromising the planet and, and giving very little back to it. And I became a vegan when I felt like this was one way that I could alleviate that guilt in this tiny little way. Um, that was incredibly easy ultimately um, because vegan products do taste really good. Um, and just the relief at knowing that I can, that I've handled this one little way in which I was doing wrong. <laughs> it feels really good. And I just think now that I've done that, I feel more capable of, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling. I, I don't know. Um, I think. No, this is good. No, I'm sorry. But this is like helpful because I think people just find it so much like the change so stark. Yeah. Like I've had roommates who are like, I didn't know I could be vegan and eat. Yeah, I didn't know I could be either. You know, like like again, it's just it's a matter it's a matter of knowing and talking through how you got to that point. I think is is valuable because it's it's a very neoliberal thing to be like, oh, it's my choice. I identify as this thing, therefore I'm making a change in the world. I'm not using I'm using a reusable straw, and therefore I'm fighting climate change. No, (laughs) you're not. I don't think I am. But this in this case in this case there is perhaps a more direct correlation right where if if there is no market for uh factory farm meat where people aren't eating as much meat then yeah maybe you can make a difference like again it's not going to change overnight but talking through those steps it's it's valuable i think when i was younger i identified on and off as like a sometimes vegetarian but i would not use that word because i didn't like the idea of being known or labeled or like being caught in my own lack of ethics or of messing up. Um, and I would always say that, you know, I, I just choose, like I, I, I sometimes choose not to eat meat, but sometimes I do. And, and then I moved in with my now fiance and he is a vegan and he is a very, um, people pleasing person who would, (laughs) who is like terrified of, of, uh, making anyone feel uncomfortable about their choices. But I think that living proximate to his choices and his decision to be ethical and to have principles in this way made me very conscious of where my principles were. And I felt like in my own head, I was having to answer, like, why? Why do I eat meat? Why do I, why don't I want to care about this thing? Um, And it was just so much easier to choose to to go vegan rather than live sort of in this guilty way, aware that I was not living up to the the person that I hoped to be. And I think on, on that note, it brings up an interesting point because there's the, uh, you know, specific kind of consumer choices, which is, you know, as you two mentioned, it is easier all the time and as, you know, probably much easier than people would imagine, um, you know, if they actually like try it out. Uh, But I think at least as big as that is the kind of social barrier that it presents. And if you're, if your social circle is kind of like more right wingish or whatever, there's still this thing, especially for, for men in particular, that this is like 
And I certainly got this as, as a child coming up is like, this is very pseudoscientifically, but it is, you know, like, this is like, you're kind of like weak or effeminate or what's wrong with you, or you're too like emotional or it's, it, there's nothing about this that makes any, you know, rational sense, but uh, it's kind, it's kind of out there. And what I would say with that, and I think that actually the example of the way that this uh, our interaction with with um, with Lucas played out uh, is really interesting because yeah, he's not any kind of vegetarian, never never has been, who knows, ever would be, um, but. Um, we kind of, uh, you know, I mean, that was just not what the conversation was about. So it's like, yeah, your individual choices are what they are. Uh, you know, I don't like everything that goes into the individual choices that I make or the what kind of pesticides were in the avocados and how much carbon footprint to ship them up from South America and worker exploitation and, and on and on it goes. So that's kind of the, the position I would take with somebody, you know, if if they're for whatever reason, aren't in the place to be, you know, vegan, you can go to somebody like Lucas and be like, Hey, you know what? Our choices, like the world is a place where there's a lot of harm, but what you can do on a systemic level is like this thing that's happened right in front of us. Like, you know, let's, let's make this happen. Let's, let's expose this. And you can do way more good for the world, probably with, with this exposure kind of in, in an activist way uh, than, than, probably your consumer choices would do in, in your, maybe your entire lifetime. And it's kind of a, you know, it's, it's a different approach to go from the individual behavioral change to sort of like the systemic change via actions. Uh, but I mean, I think people would, would just be blown away that the way that this, this was like a six week process with this from the time we kind of got wind that they were doing this ventilation shutdown to the time we documented it and um, published published our findings. And in that time period, I mean, we, like Lucas was like so engaged. He was like, he was like one of us, like so motivated and like, I'm talking to this person and I got to text this person. What do I say to this person to figure out where the trucks are going? Like he was just like so bought into it. And so, um, you know, there's, there's a place for definitely like the, the, the consumer change, the, the vegan messaging of it. Um, and there's a place, I think, for this kind of more systemic change method, uh, which is, you know, not focused on that, just sort of like focused on where that common ground is and like believing in people and basically uh, making friends. <laughs> yeah, I would say that there's a, there's quite a bit of like tension for me internally in that I am you know, a vegan and that I choose to alleviate my sort of participation in one kind of suffering in this very private way. And I feel good about that. And I drive personal satisfaction from that. And, but I don't do any public facing activism. Like I am not out there trying to draw attention to this issue. I'm not protesting. I'm not writing letters to the editor. And so part of like my goal in writing this piece was to like offer up who Matt is <laughs> and also who Kesia is. Like they both go about their their activism in, in very different ways or they, they are both like very actively trying to contribute and to change rather than to withdraw and not contribute the way that I am um, and to sort of you know, hopefully have people see in them possibilities for ways in which they too could, you know, move from a position of of not eating, of not buying to a position of of doing something. Um, I am not really that person, but I hope that people who read the piece are. Matt, 
Last question. When are you going to get arrested again? Oh, man. I think the... Uh, <laughs> are you working on something? I, uh, well, yeah, maybe there's some, some things that... Uh, it's funny when, when I... Uh, if I was late, I, I totally missed the call for... Uh, for I had my schedule mixed up for this, this very podcast. And Elizabeth calls me and I separately was like, hey, I got to tell you about this other thing. So I was starting in. I'm like, all right. It's confidential. Can we move this to signal? I'm going to tell you. And she's like, uh, no, we're supposed to do the podcast right now. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll that is it. always working. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's always tempting to kind of just like go like dive in head first. And I, uh, try to, uh, hold myself back a little bit and, you know, have to kind of take the consensus approach with uh you know other folks that are involved in this work other folks with direct action everywhere and sort of see what's overall best and actually on that note let me please uh give a a, a plug because right now there are um two of my good friends um paul and wayne are very similar circumstance to to what uh, elizabeth covered in her story these two um rescued two sick piglets that would have been killed at a smithfield foods factory farm in utah um, actually one of the biggest factory farms in the country and they are facing trial um, and we don't think these charges are going to be dismissed and um, this will be October 3rd is when that trial starts and uh, they're very very good chance that, that uh, one or both of my friends are going to end up in prison on that and so to tie it back to your question I'm <laughs> a little bit tied up with the uh, the more uh, public facing side of things and not so much the uh, kind of behind the scenes type of stuff at the moment but uh We'll, uh, we'll see what unfolds here in the future. People want to check that out. If I actually I could, uh, uh, if you want to uh, write to rescue.com has, has the full information on that. And we would love, of course, to have people check that out, tune in, support us any way you can. Well, if anybody from Iowa Select Farms is listening, you're cowards. And the people in Colorado are not cowards. So get, get your shit together. <laughs> <laughs> I dare you. <laughs> One thing I want to say about that, about them, Iowa Select Farms having retreated, is the interesting thing is that this piece was not supposed to be what it is. Like, I had pitched this piece as something about ag-gag laws, which are the, the laws that make it um, a more severe kind of misdemeanor and, and a felony if you do it twice to trespass on a on an animal agricultural operation. And so Matt was charged under one of these laws and I had pitched this thing. This case will be really interesting because it's going to challenge the constitutionality of that law. And then when Iowa Select Farms backed away and did not go to trial, you know, like it seemed pretty clear, I think to everyone that they did that because they didn't want national magazines <laughs> flying into Clarion, yeah. Iowa to come you know, talk to Matt and to sit in court and hear them, you know, ultimately have to defend some of their practices and, and depending on what Matt was able to get into evidence. Um, and I was just so happy that Harper's still ran this piece um, and that it was able to become something different, that the fact of there being no trial did not kill it, um, that we got to still you know write about this anyway um and that you know ultimately it didn't work <laughs> um in some ways you know in some ways it did in some ways they did not you know have to defend themselves as publicly as matt might have hoped and that i might have liked to have seen but yeah i mean matt still became 
in, in this piece at least, the, the main character that he wanted to be at trial. Um, and yeah, I was just as I was really happy that we got to do that. So am I, <laughs> even though it's very, it, it's, it is something that's difficult to take in. But obviously, I think over the past few years, we've seen other areas of activism drawing attention to things that are really uncomfortable, that are horrific, that have led to productive conversations about race, about consent. And there, is, there has, obviously, there's been a backlash, too, a very nasty backlash. But still, there is, there's a, there's a sense of moving forward. And that's, you know, that's, that's how you, you know, that's how you start to make a change. So thank you both for doing this. It was really lovely to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was so kind of you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thanks so much, Violet. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times called Harper's America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine, and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org save to subscribe for only 1697.